1: In September 1993, Jim Abbott took the mound at Yankee Stadium and threw one of the most dramatic no-hitter games in Major League Baseball history. That game was a high point in an unbelievable success story. Jim was born without a right hand, but that didn't stop him from fulfilling his dream of becoming an athlete. He was a two-sport standout in high school and a pitcher for the University of Michigan. Jim won the gold medal game at the 1988 Olympics, and without spending a day in the minor leagues, Join the starting rotation for the California Angels. Jim is a motivational speaker and author of Imperfect and Improbable Life. Hey, Jim, thanks for joining us today. Welcome to the show.
2: Well, thanks, Joan. I appreciate you having me here.
1: You know, Jim, I have to thank you. I have the opportunity to interview really amazing people, but your interview got me a high five from my two sons. So thanks for that, finally.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Well... That's a good start. We'll see if they agree after it's over.
1: (laughs) You know, and and along those lines, uh, as I said, I have two boys that are baseball fans. And, you know, you guys are role models to them. And growing up, you wanted to be an athlete. You went on to be a professional athlete. You wanted to be a pitcher. You pitched a no-hitter. When you were achieving these goals, was it ever in the back of your mind that you were setting an example for others maybe kids that were facing similar type challenges and that you were a role model for them?
2: It wasn't until I got to the major leagues that I really started to understand the impact of, of, um, you know, of of being a major league pitcher and and being in the spotlight and, and being different. I was born missing my right hand, and, you know, I really spent the first part of my life, you know, Fighting back against that in in, in quiet ways, uh, out on a baseball field and on you know in, in athletics and, and and all the things that I was doing and um, so no I at, at early in my life I was just doing what I love to do and trying to you know trying to find my sense of, of purpose and my identity and and um, when I got to the major leagues uh, of course there's a lot of attention a lot of media attention on 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 each player and and because I was different I received even more than, than the normal attention. And and, um, I started to see the effect that that could have with with families and parents and kids that, you know, started coming to the ballparks in every city that we played in. And, and, um, yeah, it was a really interesting facet of my career and and, and very, very motivating and very inspiring.
1: Going back to your childhood for a moment, why a baseball pitcher? I mean, someone might say, why not run track or something that maybe was less of a challenge to you. Do you think that was a mindful decision on your part?
2: <laughs> yeah, it's funny, isn't it? I could, could have done a lot of things where I didn't <laughs> have to use my hands quite as much, but um, I loved it. I loved baseball, and there was no conscious decision about where it might lead. It was just doing what the other kids did, getting in the game, getting involved. All the other kids in my neighborhood played baseball, so I wanted to play too.
1: Were your coaches receptive to you back then?
2: incredibly receptive uh and i didn't really realize how lucky i was by you know i had so many coaches who who not only were receptive but encouraging they you know when i came to a tryout you know i felt i felt the loneliness of 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 expectations and, and wanting to prove myself and and you know so many times there was a coach there who was um, you know, not only receptive to my playing, but they, you know, they pulled me into the game and said, listen, we'll figure out a way to get this done. And um, I, I was so fortunate in that. I, I, I get cards and letters to this day from, from parents, moms and dads and kids who, uh, you know, sadly don't have the same type of encouragement in their career, in their, you know, in their sporting world. And then, and, and, uh, you know, so I, I try to use the, the small forum that I have to encourage people to, to look at people for what the possibilities that they have instead of what they can't do.
1: Now, Jim, you write in your book that you hid your disability in your right front pocket. When did you finally stop feeling the need to do that?
2: I don't know, Joan. I, I, you know, I guess there are times in my life where I still do that. You know, it's it's a it's a it's a lifelong journey. It, it there are times, um, and talk about this a little bit in the book where you know being born missing my right hand, I don't even think about it. You know, I'll go weeks at a time where I don't even, you know, it's, it's not something that is part of my daily life. And, and yet, um, you know, there's other, there's other days where I may be in a new situation, you know, I may go to my uh, daughter's classrooms, or I may be at a place where, you know, there's, you know, there's, there is some awkwardness and, and, um, and then it is part of my life again. So it it, it kind of stops and starts. I don't think that you you reach this point. At least I haven't re- reached this point where you you totally say, "Oh, I you know this is um, something I'm completely comfortable with." Uh, you know, I think you always it's always sort of there.
1: Well, you know, and I think that's a wonderful point because so many of our listeners that are dealing with various types of challenges in their lives, they may think that you're healed and it goes away and you move on. And, you know, look at Jim Abbott. He's this incredibly successful baseball player. And, you know, he got past it. And as you're saying, you have moments where you push it aside, but it's always there. And I want our listeners to understand that it is a, you know, it's an everyday battle where you feel good some days, some, t- some days it comes back, but that doesn't mean you can't keep moving forward.
2: Yeah, I think that's right. I think that's right. It comes and it goes. And and and, and that's not, and, and I think you, you try to find peace with the times when when it does sneak into your life when 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 those um you know you get that awkward second glance uh walking down a street you 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 know there's some reminder of of the fact that you're different and 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 just being aware of those things you're able to take some of the power away from it when when you're a kid you're you know you're more susceptible to those types of influences, and, and as you get older, I, th- I think we build up a stronger filter, and we're able to to you know if if not completely move past you know those feelings, be you know take control of them, be aware of them, and 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 and, and use them to our advantage.
1: Now, Jim, I get the opportunity to interview a lot of people who have really overcome some tremendous obstacles, and. Often they attribute a good portion of their success to their parents. And you've said that your parents saw your condition not as a disability, but as an extraordinary opportunity. So for parents that might be listening right now who are raising children with different types of obstacles, what should these parents be telling their children, and what impact does their example have on their child?
2: Well, my parents were my heroes, um, and they serve as a, as a great inspiration to me now that I'm a parent myself. You know, I think the greatest gift that my parents gave me was the idea that my hand was something to be lived up to, and, and it was a responsibility almost. My dad used to say to me all the time, you know, Jim, what's taken away once is given back twice. and And, and I think he meant that that you need to focus on what you have instead of what's been taken away and 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 I definitely remember the, a turning point in 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 my upbringing when that became the focus for my parents you know that that yes I was born missing a right hand uh, but so much more was given to me I had athleticism you know I I had other talents that would allow me to to live up to that you know it was something uh they treated me as though you know I, I I don't. I hate. I don't really like the word "special," mm-hmm. <laughs> but they made me feel special without treating me special. If that makes any sense,
1: it makes perfect sense. And I love his words: "Taken away once is given back twice." Th- those are really incredible words to remember because that's something that we definitely forget when we just focus on what we don't have or what's missing in our lives.
2: Yeah, and, and that was something that that. You know, was passed down to him from his from his mom. My mom and dad were my heroes in a lot of ways, not just because of you know they they raised me and my brother in, in a very instinctual way, and in and, and obviously with the challenges of, of, of me being born different. It it brought a lot of anxiety and and, and unknown to their lives. Um, but they themselves, I mean, they had me at a very early age. It was a struggle for them. There was a lot of uncertainty. There was a lot of sacrifice for them, giving up sort of you know, some of the dreams that they had, you know, when they were younger and, and, and focusing on raising a family. And, and and so their their model serves me well. And I think about that now, about, about parenting and, 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 and sort of the selflessness that's involved.
1: Your career got off to a slow start. And what would you say were some of the adjustments that you needed to make to turn it around in the majors?
2: it's incredibly competitive environment at the major league level i was um i was very young when i got there i was just 21 years old and and uh i had had a pretty a pretty incredible amateur career in, in the fact that i was at the right place at the right time in a lot of ways i went to the university of michigan and played there and and then i played in the olympics in in 1988 and and, and we won a gold medal and and then all of a sudden i i made a major league team so I didn't have a lot of professional experience, and and the the key was, um, you talk about attitude. You know, the key for me was to get up on a mound in a major league uh, stadium against major league players and feel as though I belonged. You know, I had a tendency to give the other guys so much credit. I would be looking at a Cal Ripken or a, a Ken Griffey Jr. and and I, and I would I would think about how good they were instead of remembering what it was that I brought to the table and, 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 and remembering my strengths. And um, so that was the adjustment that I had to make, just, just understanding what it was that, that gave me the ability to be out there in the first place.
1: Well, and, you know, going on and pitching a no-hitter with one of the greatest baseball teams, the New York Yankees, can you describe what that day was like? Was that the greatest day of your career?
2: It was a great moment. That's for sure. I, you know, I, it probably was the greatest day of my career. Um, although it it may not have been the best game I ever, (laughs) played, to be honest, there's a certain amount of luck that's involved in a no hitter, but, um, I I never really realized how much your life can change in, in just a couple of hours. And, and I guess in a good and a bad, bad way Uh, on that day, it was in a great way. You know, I, there was a lot of, anxiousness and uncertainty that went into the beginning of that game um I hadn't been pitching all that well leading up to it, and, and and we were right in the middle of a pennant race, our team was, the Yankees were really starting to come back into prominence you know, after being down for a few years, so there was excitement and tension and anxiousness, and then all of a sudden this game starts, and they don't have any hits, and there's an excitement in the stadium that's building up with the fans and your teammates and the opponents, and it becomes this countdown of outs, and, and, and you get down to that last out when you only have one more to get and and the fans are standing up and literally jumping up and down and, and you can feel it with every nerve in your body you know that next pitch might 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 make you or you know you leave a mark for 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 really uh your whole career and 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 there it is a ground ball the shortstop Randy Velarde fields it throws it to Donnie Mattingly and and you have a moment that, that really changes your life. And, and um, to me, that game is just symbolic of, of yes, we all face tension and anxiety and nervousness, but amazing things can come out of that.
1: And you just described probably looking back at that moment, but do you recall what you were thinking while you were on the mound?
2: I remember hopefulness, and, and um, I, I remember it, literally the... the the physical feelings of, of, of feeling your heartbeat and, and feeling, you know, that, that shakiness in your, in your, in your legs, you know, <laughs> that, that, just that excitement of the moment. And, and, um, but I, but I felt great. I, I felt, you know, confident and, and I excited and, and a little bit of, of, of letting go to, 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 the baseball god, so to speak. You know, just the only thing I could really control was the pitch that I threw and the place that I threw it to. And and after that, you know, things kind of have to go your way. And and I remember a, with all of the excitement and tension involved, you know, a little bit of, of letting go and, and acceptance of, of what was to come next.
1: Now, Jim, after an accompli- accomplishment like that, you just mentioned when you began that you you know, you felt like you didn't fit in with the baseball greats. You have to admit now, do you finally feel that you belong there?
2: Well, I did feel like I belonged in a major league. I, I was given a lot of talent. I think it goes back to what my dad, you know, dad said more was given to me than was ever taken away. Um, and there were definitely moments when I felt like I belonged and I felt like I was one of the better players in the league. Um, and, and and yet there's also moments when when we're tough on each one ourselves, and and that's a little bit of the exploration of the book is is looking back on your life, looking back on a career, and and, and finding you know acceptance in the effort that you gave, and and for a long time I was very harsh, I judged my career in, in a very harsh way, and and. And now, you know, I, the book really actually kind of helped me to look back on the effort and look back on how far I came in my life. And, and you know, it's a long way from Flint, Michigan to Yankee Stadium. And, and, and um, you know, I've really come to be proud of of the things that I did on a baseball field and and, and the great way that fans have, have um, you know, really embraced my career and, and, and taken me in.
1: Have you ever thought that perhaps you experienced everything that you have in life to be given this very public platform and go out and change so many
3: lives?
2: I, I don't know that I believe that, but I, the thought has crossed my mind. <laughs> <laughs> um, only because my dad believed that in some ways. And, and, and I, you know, I don't know that I share his faith in that, but, um, I, I do think, there is an interesting narrative in, in my career and, and I played in some of the greatest places, you know, for, for really kind of uh coincidental reasons. I, I played on the West Coast and I played on the East Coast with the Yankees and, and teams that everybody had heard of and, and, and watched and knew of and, and I had this great moment and and then I had this difficulty and I had this struggle and uh in professional struggle in my career later on and, and, and in some ways those are experiences that I think a lot of people can relate to, and, and um, it's—I I don't know that I love the the, the word, you know, the the, the the label of motivational speaker, um, but I, I do really, really enjoy the fact that the the audiences that I get a chance to talk to get inspiration and motivation from these experiences that my career had. It doesn't take a lot for me to drum that up, to 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 find uh, resonance and to find. Um, things that people can connect with.
1: The book is Imperfect and Improbable Life by Jim Abbott. If you'd like more information about Jim, you can visit his website, jimabbott.net. And as always, you can visit our website, cyacyl.com. That stands for Change Your Attitude, Change Your Life. While on our site, listen to past shows, his podcasts, read our digital magazine, sign up for our mailing list, take part in our book club, and be sure to follow the show on Facebook and Twitter. Jim I really want to thank you for spending time with us today I think that personally I don't believe in coincidences I think that everything in your life brought you to this point and I think you have a very public platform and I'm so happy that you are using it to inspire people that are going through different challenges in their lives and I'm so honored that you shared some time with us today so thank you
2: Well, it was a real treat for me, and and I thank you, Joan, and, and good luck with passing on a positive message.
1: This is Conversations with Joan. Stay with us. We'll be right back.
4: Do you feel lost on your journey to health and happiness? Then let us guide you on your path, personalized actions towards health. Your path is a series of choices you act on every day. We guide you on a personalized journey of dietary, exercise, genetic, supplement, and lifestyle choices that lead you to optimal health and happiness. Often taking the road less traveled leads to liberation. Your path is personal. Your journey, like you, is unique. Take action today. Head to bestpathforme.com. Again, that's bestpathforme.com.
1: want to live a happy, productive life, but sometimes we just need a little help. Our coach on call experts provide strategies to help you live your best life now. Joining me today is Odette Coronel, a coach who helps people create the life and relationships they want. She is here today to discuss how to have difficult conversations. Welcome, Odette. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me on your show. I'm happy to be here. So, Odette, why do you believe that some people are uncomfortable with having a difficult conversation? The majority of times, I believe that
5: the main reason why some people are so uncomfortable with having difficult conversations, it's, it's rooted in fear. First of all, fear of the unknown. It's the natural human tendency to remain in a space that feels familiar, that is known to us even if that space is uncomfortable, even if we're happy or if our if our we're unhappy or if our feelings are hurt or if we're feeling disrespected, we often choose to stay in the discomfort that we're used to rather than deal with the discomfort of having a difficult conversation and addressing the issue. For instance, let's say a woman is upset with her partner about something he said or did, instead of having that difficult conversation, about how she's feeling and potentially even clearing up a misunderstanding or solving the problem, she may choose to continue feeling upset and continue finding justifications for how she's feeling rather than possibly finding a solution through a conversation. There's also the fear of not being able to express ourselves properly, not knowing what to say or not being understood, of getting too emotional. And as a result, what we meant to say doesn't come out quite as we had hoped. There's fear of how the other person will react. We're afraid that the other person may get angry or defensive or fear of what the other person may think of us, fear of being judged or fear of offending the other person or hurting someone's feelings. The bottom line is that when we avoid having a conversation that we really should be having,
1: that avoidance stems from some form of fear. So Odette, in any relationship, Effective communication is important. What do you believe happens when we avoid having those important conversations? It is very important
5: to have effective conversations in a relationship. And, you know, if in your heart you know that there's something important or essential for you to communicate with your partner, and you're avoiding having the conversation because it may be difficult or uncomfortable or because you're afraid, then you're also avoiding the possibility of a resolution. By not having the conversation, the issue that you need to discuss will continue to exist. It doesn't just go away if you ignore it or avoid discussing it. You will continue to feel hurt or angry or disappointed. The other person may continue doing whatever it is that they did to upset you. And what happens is that by avoiding the issue, instead of it going away, the problem often grows. So something started off as a, sm- as a small problem that needed to be addressed and we ignore it, it eventually turns into a medium problem. And if we keep ignoring it before we know it, it's a huge problem and the potential to solve it becomes more and more difficult. That's how things escalate. When you don't address things while they're manageable, they grow into something bigger. It's kind of like if you notice a few ants in a certain area of your house, it's no big deal. right? It happens, especially in the summer. However, if you don't ignore it and you immediately address it, It's not a big deal. It's a bit uncomfortable. It's kind of gross. It's something you'd rather not have to deal with. But if you do deal with it, as soon as you're aware of the problem, you can eliminate the problem. However, if you choose to ignore the ants and do nothing, eventually what started off as a couple of ants or a little anthill becomes a mountain of ants and an even bigger problem and even more difficult to address.
1: Okay, so we understand the importance of addressing a problem. But you mentioned fear is a reason why so many of us avoid having these conversations. So what is the best way then to communicate when you're discussing a sensitive topic? The best way to communicate when you have to discuss a sensitive topic is to
5: remember and understand exactly why it is important to have this difficult conversation in the first place. And that root of why it's important to have the conversation is the exact opposite of why we often choose to avoid it. If the the decision to avoid the difficult conversation stems in fear, then the reason why we must have this difficult conversation is love. The opposite of fear is love. So the first thing to keep in mind is to have the conversation from a space of love, not fear. Ask yourself, what is your true intention for having this conversation? Do I want to prove that I'm right or do I want my feelings to be validated or do I want to solve the problem? and maybe come up with some kind of solution. Think about it and get really clear on your intention. And don't forget to listen. Acknowledge and validate your partner's perspective. Try to avoid attacking or criticizing. Make a true effort to really hear and understand. Think about what it is exactly that you wanna communicate, why you wanna communicate it, and how you will communicate it. Be aware of your language, as well as your tone and your body language, your energy. What do I hope will happen about, as a result of having this conversation? And, you know, most importantly, remember that you are 100% responsible for what you communicate and how you communicate it, and your partner is responsible for how he or she responds. Another point that I just want to make quickly about having difficult conversations, when you're having a difficult conversation, if it's rooted in love, it's always kind to to bring something positive. Maybe tell the other person something that you love or admire about them. Notice something that they've done well recently or mention something you appreciate about them. By stating something positive, you help to remind your partner that you do see acknowledge the good in them, and you bring some positive, loving energy into the conversation.
1: And very quickly, Odette, what happens when we follow your advice? If you're able to engage in a difficult conversation with your partner, you will most likely
5: feel a sense of relief. An effective conversation should lead to some kind of resolution. Even if it's only the fact that you were able to express yourself and be honest with your partner, that should bring you a sense of peace and calmness. Hopefully your feelings are validated. Perhaps you've got an understanding of your partner's perspective. True growth and connection in a relationship happens when we're willing to be honest and vulnerable with our partner. Having a difficult conversation could potentially help you and your partner develop a deeper understanding of each other and bring you closer together. Remember, when the conversation is rooted in love, it reminds you that you are both on the same side and keeps you focused on finding solutions and deeper connection.
1: Odette, thank you so much for joining us. If you would like to learn more about Odette and her work, you can visit odettecoronel.com. Or as always, to hear more from Odette, you can visit our website, cyacyl.com odette. We'll be right back.
3: We create energetic patterns in places we occupy the most, like our homes and workplaces. What most people don't know is that these energetic patterns affect our lives on a physical, mental, emotional, and spiritual level. Imagine what type of energetic patterns are released from couples when a divorce is in the mix. Usually, there are a lot of arguments compounded with sadness and fear. If one of the couples remains in the home after the divorce, those energetic patterns are embedded into their surroundings, including the walls, furniture, and even the bed they both slept on. If the other moves out, the furnishings they take with them are still carrying the energetic patterns from the relationship. During this time, the best way to move forward in your personal environment is to have your space professionally cleared with the intention of healing on all levels. Next, take inventory of the furnishings you are keeping. This is a good time to get rid of any remaining items that bring you sadness or unpleasant memories. Now, it's time to make it home for you and your things. As you start your new single life over, begin to remember what makes you happy. What makes your heart sing? What are your passions? You can start by surrounding yourself with the elements that support your creativity and passions. Remember, this is your space and your time. Your space should reflect who you are. Starting your life over can be a cathartic experience. Embrace the moment and make it count. This is Roxanne D'Angelo, a Feng Shui and Space Clearing Consultant. If you would like more information, you could reach me on the web at crystalclearenergies.com or call 201-615-0960.
1: The trick is to enjoy life. Don't wish away your days waiting for better ones ahead. I recently stumbled upon this quote by Marjorie Pay Hinckley. Marjorie's words got me to thinking about my life and how I've rushed most of it away, not being fully present or savoring the joy of any moment. Hi, this is Joan Herman here with a lesson learned while earning my PhD in life. Don't wish away your days waiting for better ones. When I was a teenager, I couldn't wait to grow up so I could drink or go to college or even get married. When my children were infants and toddlers, I muddled through most days in anticipation of the evening when they would go to sleep, and I thought about when they would be older and more self-sufficient. When I was the caregiver for my parents, I struggled through those years frazzled and exhausted. When I held job positions that were unfulfilling, I wished for the day that I would find employment that made me happy. Looking back, I can't recall one period in my life in which I wasn't looking ahead to something different or better. The sad thing is that it took tremendous loss to wake me up the loss of my marriage, the deaths of my parents and siblings, my children growing up and moving on with their lives. Now, I strive to live in the present moment. All those quotes about leaving the past behind and not worrying about the future are so true. When you live in the past or try to anticipate the future, you miss the here and now. So what can you do? When you're dealing with a challenge, look for the positive and learn from the experience. If you're caring for a sick loved one, treasure every minute because I promise you one day you would give anything to nurse that person again. If your children are driving you crazy, remember that sooner than you'll like, they will be moving out and starting their own lives. All the seemingly insignificant moments, both good and bad, are as Paul Anka said, the times of your life. Enjoy them all. Thank you for spending this time with me. For more inspiration and empowering tools, visit joanherman.com.
0: This is WNYM, Hackensack, New Jersey, New York City.
1: Welcome back to Conversations with Joan. I'm Joan Herman. Thanks for staying with us. Like it or not, change is inevitable change occurs, we may wonder if we can get through it. My next guest, Iman al-Zabi, says that responding to the challenges of the modern world is an endurance event and not a sprint. She believes that it's essential that we learn how to swim through the dark waves in order to reach the light. Iman is the author of the book, Finding Grace, Daily Comfort for Uncertain Times. Welcome Iman, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me, John. So, Iman, tell us about your life. How did you get started on a spiritual path?
6: Well, that's a, 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 a long story, but um, it essentially started when I suffered from anxiety disorder, panic disorder, and, and depression. And it was started with postpartum depression that developed into, you know, a long period of depression that didn't go away. So from there on, I, I kind of tried to find solutions in the medical world. And, you know, um, my psychologist couldn't help but give me medication. And I knew that wasn't the answer. So I'd go to him and say, I have these thoughts in my head and I want them to stop. And he would say, you know, just make them stop. And I'm like, you don't know what I'm going through and you don't understand. So I realized back then, you know, I've got to find a way and i got to take my power back. So as soon as I learned about CBT, cognitive behavioral therapy, finding ways to change the way I think, I started to feel like, you know what? I feel more empowered now that I I can, I feel like I have the tools Mm -hmm. to conquer these thoughts and work with them. And so that's when my journey started. And then I started to um, learn a little bit about the work of Louise Hay and, and the work of many others and that's when my journey started into um, practicing energy healing, uh, working with um, trauma release and, and all that that goes with kind of recovering the self. And so, yeah, my journey started with anxiety and padding disorder and then ended up with me finding me
1: again. You know, it's interesting because as I'm listening to you, it sounds like you're describing my life. I had a very similar path. I had been married for 23 years i raised my children i had what seemed to be to the outside world a very normal quote unquote normal life and then in a period of 6 months my marriage ended my oldest son left for college my mother died and my sister died and i wow. went through all of this grief and loss and you know i had to deal with with death and divorce and self esteem issues and I hadn't worked in the outside world in 17 years. I was raising my family. And so it's very similar to what you went through. I could have taken a pill, but I decided that I wanted to figure out who I was, what I could learn from this experience. And that's where the work that I do came from. Everything that I'm doing is the result of what I went through and the lessons. And it's very similar to what you experienced. So can you share with us a little bit about what you've learned since you started this journey?
6: Yeah, it was mostly me learning that the reason I have that anxiety and panic disorders is because I felt at some level I betrayed myself. Mm-hmm. Um, I betrayed myself by kind of getting married early, um, having a premature child, studying at that time. It was a lot of social pressure also from my husband's family and all the things that the society wanted me to do and I couldn't do and didn't want to do. But perform, right? Mm-hmm. And so in that space, I learned because I wasn't being myself, I, you know, my body was sending those signals, you know, anxiety and the panic and everything else around it was basically saying, you know what, you're, you're not on your right path. You're not on, on, on your true path as being yourself. And so that, that was the main lesson for me. So right now, as I know that if I feel like something is off in my psyche, I have to attend to it. So you have to kind of attend to, to your psyche as soon as possible so that it doesn't get in, out of hand at some point. That, it, that grief doesn't take over your life or a sense of loss doesn't take over or despair. Um, practicing those kind of um, inner check-in is a very important thing. And this is one of the things I talk about in my first book, The Art of Surrender, I talk about knowing the self and understanding what it stands for and its values and and kind of living in congruence to that. Mm -hmm. That to me is a path to authentic living.
1: I know for most of my adult life, I was just muddling through life, not really paying attention to what anything meant. It, It was really just wake up, do the routine, go to bed and then get up the next day and start all over. Do you think that's why there are so many people that are suffering today with depression and anxiety disorders because they're not honoring their true self? Oh, absolutely. That, to me, is, is
6: the key. Like, there's there is always a key in lock, and, and there's a key that will unlock. And to me, for the self, as soon as you don't give the self the right environment, the right... Um, should I say the life that it wants to live and and because we're not checking in because we're not asking those questions of ourselves because we're not kind of staying with ourselves and and asking about what is our vision what a life would like to be and what kind of values do I want to live by and when I say values I don't really mean like ethical kind of values what I mean is things that you value as a person if you value beauty then that's a thing you would want to live by. So you want to make sure you know, your environment is beautiful. You want to make sure you have a beautiful garden or whatever that is that that, that pleasures your soul, right? And then um, if you feel like adventure is your thing and, and you're not giving that to yourself, you will always, always betray yourself and feel there's something off and I, there's something missing
1: in my life. And one of the things that I learned and that I strongly believe today is that we need to keep our emotional, our spiritual, and our physical parts in balance. We're sum of all of those things, and it's really important to pay attention to each.
6: Absolutely. Yeah.
1: So we're living through challenging times today, and um, you know, people are are scared. We're dealing with coronavirus around the world. There's a lot of uncertainty. It's really uncharted waters for most of us. How can someone find that balance that we just talked about?
6: I think it's about what I'm seeing right now and what the world is going through is, is really a removal of the mask. Mm-hmm. Even though we're putting an actual mask, but we're removing another mask, which is a mask that we put on for years of pretending to be someone we're not or of pretending that you know, we, want to, we want to do this thing in life. But then at the time of retreat when we come back in, um, we are starting to really uh, um, look at life differently. Like, you know, when when you face death and when you face loss, when you face challenges, everything kind of becomes clear and everything becomes small. You know, the the, the boyfriend that you cared about for so long, <laughs> it doesn't matter anymore, right? Right. Or, or you know, the, the thing that you always wanted to you know, impress or the friend that you wanted to compare yourself to. It doesn't really matter anymore. This is a time when, when the virtues inside of us want to come out. This is a time when our values want to come out. This is a time of us redeeming ourselves and coming forth to our true full self. And when I say that, it doesn't mean you're going to live a life of no challenges at all. Or if you're going to live a life that you're not going to be uh, in, in, a, in a state of pain of any kind. That just goes with life. Life is always um, in cycles and there's always that element. There's always polarity in life, right? But it's about how strong can you feel inside? How resilient can you feel inside? How uh, um, anti-fragile you are. mm mm-hmm. Inside, just it's because you have gone through the journey of self-discovery, just because you have known your values, just because you're connected to yourself, to nature and to God. To me, those are the
1: three most important relationships. And we're being forced to be with ourselves and slow down and and quiet all of the noise. And I love what you said, the removal of the mask, even though we're wearing a mask. I think that that just says it all. And even though we're all experiencing a lot of pain, I think that there are so many blessings that can be found during this time. And and you just said it so eloquently.
6: Oh, absolutely. And I noticed that in my family, like, you know, when we are in, um, this is the first Ramadan that I've witnessed without me being with my extended family or being at the mosque or, you know, performing our prayer in communion. Um, it was hard to, to be in that space. But what I noticed is that our family started to carry on with this rituals regardless. Right. So we did it in very, very small circle. And my husband took the lead, um, and I took the lead in other things, and my kids took the lead in other things. So it was beautiful to witness that happening in the family. And also to to find each other, because we've always been busy as, as adults and individuals. I found my husband, my husband found me, and I found my children, and they found me. And to me, that was the greatest blessing.
1: The book is Finding Grace, Daily Comfort for Uncertain Times. Iman, thank you so much for spending time with us today. Absolutely. Thank you, Joan, for having me. This is Conversations with Joan. Stay with us. We'll be right back.
4: Hi, this is Mark Anthony with a quick path tip. What does your breath and fat have in common? Carbon, hydrogen, and oxygen. At a basic level, all fat is made up of carbon, hydrogen, and oxygen. Now, I bet you are not aware that roughly 80% of your fat loss happens when you exhale. How can that be, you ask? Take a big deep breath in. Now exhale. Let's take a look at what happened in that breath cycle. Most of what you breathed in was O2, or oxygen. The oxygen that you breathed in connected to the carbon and hydrogen atoms in your fat. The hydrogen turns into water, and the carbon turns into carbon dioxide. The air you breathe out. Since the carbon in fat weighs more than the hydrogen, roughly 80% of your fat loss is exhaled as CO2. So, what does this really come down to? Do exercises that cause heavy breathing. Whether you walk, run, lift weights, high intensity, or low intensity, focus on your breath and revel in the fact that it's causing you to breathe away the inches on your waistline. For more information, please visit bestpathforme.com. Once again, that is BestPathForMe.com.
1: We all want to live a happy, productive life, but sometimes we just need a little help. Our Coach On Call experts provide strategies to help you live your best life now. Joining me today is Heidi Rome, an autism mom's coach, and founder of Mom Spectrum Oasis. Heidi's Autism Hope Mindset System empowers a mom to take back her life while creating a bright future for her spectrum child. Heidi is here today to talk about self-caring at the heart of meeting need. Welcome, Heidi. Thanks for joining us. Thank you for
7: having me, Joan. It's always a pleasure to be here with you.
1: Heidi, in past segments, you shared what you've learned about handling life's unexpected plot changes. For moms managing challenging situations, you encourage them to take off their hard hats and put on their human hats. Is that something that you've had to do?
7: Oh, absolutely. Um, you know, we, we all do hard things, Joan. Uh, but the, the truth is I am more about talking to each of us about when do we allow ourselves to do fun things, right? That's what I, the human things, the fun things to have permission to breathe, to give yourself the space to be human. You know, we, we tend to glorify the, the pedestal of the hard. Uh, you know, we put people on a pedestal who we think are doing hard things, but we seldom reward the seat of, of what's soft. And we all need a soft cushion to land in, to rest in, and to talk to others from. You know, that's not from a pedestal. We need to do, have fun, do these soothing things, not as an afterthought or something to do when we have time, you know, which will be never, uh, but putting on our human hat by resting, by being still, by meeting our own heart's need for grounding and recharging and appreciation that honors who we are and it strengthens us to continue to be of service to ourselves and to others, you know, especially our, our kids who are dealing with challenges.
1: So you're talking about allowing yourself to be human. We've all just had a, a really difficult year plus some months. Do you think the pandemic has created a more authentic awareness of personal
7: needs? Yeah, Joan, uh, well, this year has been hard for many folks in so many directions. and And yes, I believe that the pandemic has brought the the human back to humanity. You know, all together we've we've hurt, we've been scared, we've worked together, we've realized we cannot control stuff, life, um, or do it all, and and we don't want to bang our heads against that wall anymore. You know, we must become aware now to to listen, to hear, and to engage our needs. So our bodies can stop breaking. So families can stop breaking. And to pause, you know, what is a key learning from COVID? That we are not alone. That our personal and community needs are interconnected and the same. That when faced with an uncontrollable circumstance, several paths for response, for personal responsibility, for choice, show up. You've
1: shared with us the importance of choosing love over fear to simplify hard decisions and, you know, boy, is that something we've had to do over the past year. We needed to push that fear aside. So how do you believe that message applies today?
7: It is so important to me to consistently encourage, to edify and empower moms, not only for doing all the many hard things, but also to encourage them to rest, to pause, to feel, and to laugh again. Love flourishes with laughter and community. And fear, the thing that has driven us to so many self-destructive things, fear cannot exist side by side with laughter and community and love. My experience as an isolated mom helped me to understand just how important a consistent community is how important gathering with other women of different experiences is, how important it is that we pause and allow our own needs to bubble up past the this-has-to-be-done to-do list, you know, our need for love and laughter, appreciation and belonging. You know, perhaps you've heard Mike Dooley's term, the art of selfish service. I love this. It's an awesome win-win perspective. We transform lives when we follow our hearts, our gifts, our passion, our unique experiences to meet the needs of as many people as possible. Here's the thing, including ourselves. Choosing the path of love, expansion, possibility, and not choosing fear, contraction, isolation. We connect with others, we take back our power of creative response to challenges, and we transform obstacles into opportunities to grow and solve and heal. You know, So has life changed your script delivering yet another surprise plot change? Well then allow your community to hand you a pen guiding you and cheering you on as you write your next empowering chapter in the story of your life. When we rest and share and support our deep need for connection and belonging within all humanity is met and we can relax and celebrate all we've triumphed over, including COVID, looking to the future with joy and hope.
1: Heidi, thank you so much for joining us. If you would like to learn more about Heidi and her work, you can visit her website, MomsSpectrumOasis.com. That's Moms with an S, momspectrumoasis.com, Or as always, to hear more from Heidi, you can visit our website, dot com slash Heidi. Do you believe that there can be a silver lining from tragedy and that blessings come in disguise? Hi, this is Joan Herman here with a lesson learned while earning my PhD in life. Your attitude determines how you view a situation and how you move through it. A tragedy is defined as an event causing great suffering, destruction and distress. We understand the meaning of those words, however I believe the important component is how we view the situation. What may be a tragedy to one person is nothing more than a bump in the road to another. And while we can agree that events such as death, divorce, or job loss create less than desirable circumstances, each can be viewed and handled differently from one person to the next. The key is that person's outlook. There are people who see the glass half full in all situations, and others who see it as half empty. We have a choice about how we view what occurs in our life, and that choice determines how we will transition through a tragic experience. So how can you get through a tragedy? recognize that you have a choice in the situation we often believe that we are a victim of circumstance and that this will be our lot in life we think that we will never recover the key to moving on is to know that you have the power to change the situation no matter how devastating the circumstance you have the power to get through it you are not a victim the choice is yours never suppress your feelings hurt sadness and grief are all normal emotions and they should be felt The problem occurs when you allow yourself to stay stuck, when you assume the role of victim. Get help if you cannot do it by yourself. Read books and seek information that can help you get your head in the game. Reach out to friends and loved ones. Isolation can make the situation worse. And seek professional assistance if you're overwhelmed, depressed, or have suicidal thoughts. Remember, you're not alone and you have a choice. How we experience our life comes from how we view what we experience. As Dr. Wayne Dyer said, When we change the way we look at things, the things we look at change. Thanks for spending this time with me. For more inspiration and empowering tools, visit joanherman.com. Thank you for joining us. I hope you found the show informative change your attitude, change your life, we believe that knowledge is power. Take what you've learned, apply it, and live your best life now.